You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now or in about an hour. You're about to hear the recording of me chatting one-to-one with an expert. You're more than welcome to join the next live call. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. We're up to episode eight in the summer series of Nonprofit Problem Solver, and I get to spend the next hour talking all things social enterprises with Cole Hoover, director of Moving Worlds Institute. Cole has years of experience instructing and guiding social enterprises, and part of his job includes leading an international fellowship program. Cole has years of experience instructing and guiding social enterprises. Part of his job is leading an international fellowship program. We focus on what drives social entrepreneurs, how they balance the demands for profit, while making a social impact and increasingly an environmental one. Of course, we try to pull out all the practical lessons for nonprofits interested in new ways of income generation. Welcome, everyone. It is uh, Nonprofit Problem Solver. Uh, this uh, is the summer series of one-to-one uh, meetings that I'm having with a range of guests covering a range of different topics. And I am thrilled today to uh, be speaking to Cole Hoover from the Moving World Institute uh, in, um, in the Pacific Northwest, a beautiful part of the country. And uh, we'll be spending the next hour or so talking about social enterprise and what lessons social enterprise and and Cole's uh, experience in particular has for uh, nonprofits, nonprofit executive directors, program directors, development directors, and board chairs. And so those of you who are joining live, feel free to light up the chat with whatever questions or comments that you want, and uh, we'll try and pick those up as we go. Welcome, Cole. How are you? I'm doing good, Kev. How are you? We're, okay. uh, as you said, based up in Seattle, Washington. Um, we've got a team all over the world, but I'm based in Seattle in the U.S., and we're dealing with, uh, for us at least, some hot weeks. It was 99 Fahrenheit last week, so we're all kind of wow. hiding inside. Right. So uh, tell us about your current role and a bit about Moving Worlds Institute. Sure. Um, So I serve as the director of the Moving Worlds Institute, and I also support a lot of our educational programs at Moving Worlds. So um, I'll give the quick rundown. Moving Worlds is an organization that's been around for about a decade, and we started as a matching platform for skilled professionals to work with social enterprises that had some kind of a capacity gap, some area that they could use a pro bono consultant in. Our programs grew over the years to do corporate consulting, so help corporate response, corporate social responsibility offices at companies to improve their impacts. And then about 
four and a half, five years ago, we launched the fellowship, which I direct, which is a career transition program. It's a six month curriculum arc for people who are trying to uh, make their careers more impactful in a variety of ways. And we have people from private sector, public sector, people from the education field, um, traditional nonprofits all around. And so uh, it's, again, a learning community, community of practice for experienced professionals trying to really further align their strengths with what they find fulfillment in and what the world really needs. So that's the, that's the quick intro to Moving Worlds Institute. Right. That's, that's, that's great. So you, you, uh, you're basically at that centerpiece of uh, social enterprise of people coming from both the private sector moving into social enterprise and then the public and nonprofit sector moving into social enterprise, uh, you know, in a diagram sense, we might say from, from opposite directions. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the difference and maybe, maybe just as a start before we get into that, uh, do you have a standard definition of a social enterprise that you do you use to describe it? Because it's a it is yeah. that sort of muddy gray area between uh, between for profit and nonprofit, which is a binary people seem to get. Yep. Uh, so tell so what what's your standard way of describing social enterprise? Yeah, great question. And it's for us, it's ever evolving. And you know, there's so many different definitions for us. Like the way that we approach it is that we believe in cross-sector collaboration. We believe that if we're going to solve the largest problems in the world, you need government, you need higher education, you need private sector, you need plural sector, like we need foundations involved. And so for us, like we believe um, that we need a definition that many people can see themselves in and many organizations to aspire to. So we definitely don't, um, try to over over index to just businesses doing good or not-for-profits being more efficient. It's really all of that. And the I'll, I'll paraphrase kind of the usable definition that we bring in our fellowship and a lot of our other programs. And that is that a social enterprise is an organization that utilizes business principles to scale social and environmental impact. And the part that we'd add on to that is usually using a human-centered process and with a mind for the larger system that they're a part of. So there's more of like a holistic way that they're connected to the causes, the effects, and the externalities of what they do. But for us, like why that's really important is it's not that it's a business and it's not that it's a not-for-profit. Like tax status to us isn't as important. We're uh, ourselves we're a social purpose corporation, um, which is a like a benefit corporation. It's a structure that it maximizes impact and doing good, while at the same time um, still having a ability to earn revenue and grow sustainability through some of those market mechanisms. Okay, that that that's useful. But I think the a key distinction uh, is um, from from a nonprofit perspective is that. Uh, it is not the, you know, and I think this is this is a problematic definition or, or perspective on nonprofits anyway. But it, it's it's common for people to think that a nonprofit exists to bring in grants and donations and then yeah. provide programming for for free or very low cost, uh, totally. which is which is a which is a perfectly acceptable model of nonprofits. But it's also not very sustainable or hard to sustain, uh, in the sense that you're constantly bringing in revenue that's not generated through your programming or your services, whereas a social enterprise is, um, is it's, its income sources are more tied to what it's actually doing. Yep. Yeah. I, I think that's a great way to say it. And, and for us, like 
there's still so many problems out there that there's not going to be a market-based solution to. Um, you know, there's, there's arguments to be made, but like healthcare, education, there's aspects of that that we either need a government intervention or some philanthropic capital to subsidize the program. So for us, it's, it's making sure we don't go too far to the other end. And I think there's been some criticism of trying to make all nonprofits a social enterprise. Some grants are going to be what makes sense. Well, we really... Um, try to nudge our participants who are in more traditional not-for-profits is, although you might have that grant income that can help subsidize or help launch new programs, could you think up um, places where you could earn revenue, places where you could be a little bit more sustainable and not as dependent on those philanthropic funds, especially in times right now where we're facing a global pandemic. We saw the same thing in the 2008 recession. Not-for-profits who had no earned revenue strategies really, really struggled because grants and donations went down in a lot of cases. Yeah, I, I, I see that a lot too. And, and a lot of interest and curiosity around earned income strategies. One of the questions I think that people have is uh, in the sense that the, their main programming or the focus of their programming or the people they serve is around some sort of market failure. So it could be, mm. you know, you know, any sort of the, of the human services or, or even animal welfare or, or the arts programming, there's some market failure where people are not buying it or investing in it in, in the same sort of way. Uh, and when it comes to then thinking about income generation, um, it's not necessarily an explicit thing, but I, I see people struggling with this, with this question is, do I, do I generate income from something, something related to what I'm actually doing? Or do I generate income from something else like merchandise sales, for example, or, or, you know, it's just something that I feel can generate some profit and then whatever those profits are, I'm going to push it into what I really care about. And, and so those are, those are two, again, sort of different ways of thinking about it. What, what, is, what have you seen in, in, in your fellowships and the, the people that you come across for training, how they address those, those challenges? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And I think the way that you frame it helps people to be really creative about it because maybe you're a social enterprise that has a nonprofit structure and maybe you are selling a service and your customer and your beneficiary are the same person and that like you're just filling a market gap and you're in a more affordable way providing healthcare, education, transportation, something that they're the people who are in some kind of vulnerable situation don't have ready access to or can't afford. Like that could be one way of, of scaling your work. Another way, and we see examples like this all over the planet is businesses who they offer a traditional product or service um, or, or even nonprofit offers a traditional product or service to a certain customer. And then they use those funds to um, fund some kind of other philanthropic, charitable, not-for-profit impact activity. So um, we, we see both. Like, on, honestly, I don't, I don't think there's like a clear distinction of one works, one doesn't. Um, we, we really embrace people finding like what's the actual right fit, not only for you, but as you go through a human-centered design process and thinking about who is the who are we really designing for? What are their needs? How do we respect their voice in the process? You get a little bit of a better linkage of which route to take. Yeah, I can I can see that because if you are are trying to think of the um, traditional product or service, introducing a new product or service that where where your 
customer and beneficiary are not the same thing. It's almost like doing startup business, yeah. it, 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 you know, it, alongside, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. under the same roof as a, as a nonprofit. And your, if your motivation is to generate income for the nonprofit, you know, start a business to a different market may, may be the most challenging way. Of doing yeah, it. totally. Yeah. That sounds like pushing a boulder up a hill with a backpack full of rocks. That'd be, that's right. all. Right, right, right. Okay, so tell us about the uh, the fellowship. Where that what what um, you said is about four or five years old. What was the germination the the germinating reason for that, and yeah. what what's it sort of doing, and where where's your next steps with that? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think that really the germination was that we'd been supporting social entrepreneurs all over the world for years, and we'd been running programs within corporations. Uh, like Microsoft's uh, client we've had for years who we've helped build social impact leadership development and volunteer matching programs. And one of the things that we realized was, A, that we'd cultivated some curriculum around personal leadership development, but also using your skills for a greater impact. And then also in our wider audience, we were seeing so many skilled professionals who had a skill, had an area that they were passionate about, wanted to get connected to, and They had an instinct, they had an assumption that their skill could be used for a lot of impact, but because they didn't have that experience, like some of these people were mid-career people, highly experienced, they'd been directors, they'd led all these different kinds of things in their organizations, but because they couldn't point and say, this is how my, as an example, my finance skill was used to help a social enterprise uh, get ready to raise investment or someone else say, Um, I'm a communications director and I can point to the time that I helped create a sustainable communications plan for a growing not-for-profit in Cambodia, whatever, all different kinds of things where people were getting, um, they were needing examples that they could use to then go and expand their job search and be more competitive for some of these social impact positions. Right. So you've been, so how many fellowships do you do support in your, in your program in Seattle? So, uh, so we're a global team. So we've got staff oh, I, members okay. in. It's not, uh, a, it's not a U.S. specific fellowship. No, no, no. We've had. Uh, I think okay, fe- I misunderstood. At fellow, at this point, I think we've had fellows from thirty-five different countries, and we've got some. We've got an office in Seattle, and then offices in Europe and other places in the U.S. and South America too. So we're our team spread around, and we do our fellowships with people from all around the planet. I see. I see. Yeah. And how many fellowships do you support? Are they annual fellowships? Uh, we launch at this point, uh, I'm trying to think, we're doing um, four a year, so four new cohorts. Um, we keep our cohorts small, so they're under 30 people, and that allows for like a really, really customized, really uh, modular experience for the people because we find that folks have all different kinds of needs as adult learners. Um, so we do four of those a year, and, and that's kind of how it's grown. We, um, at this point, have about 160 alumni who are spread out, like I said, around about 35 different countries. So if you do four cohorts up to 30, you support up to, you know, between 100 and 120 people a year. How long does the fellowship last? So it's a six-month program. So we, um, yeah, there's a six-month arc that people go on. And then after that, um, like, you know, really our impact thesis is that we need to be a part of and supporting people's impact careers for years and years, maybe even decades to come to have a real impact. Like we're not going to have this total change in six months. Like we'll plant a seed, we'll create a framework, we'll build a shared vocabulary that people can use to talk about cross-sector impact. But after that six months, 
We have a very, very um, strong team investment in our alumni community and continuing to support people building their network for years to come. Right. So every quarter you're taking in a new cohort. Yes. Uh, where would people who are interested find more information about the fellowship and, and how to apply? Yeah. So we've got a landing page. I can put it up in the chat. Um, oh, that'd be great. So, so it's just uh, mwi.movingworlds.org. Um, if anyone's interested in the rest of the Moving Worlds program, we've got another learning community for social enterprises specifically working in sustainable supply chains and do consulting for building learning communities around social impact. That's just on movingworlds.org. So you can, you can find that as well. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And then sure. the, the site, do you also have a range of guidance material resources for people to you know, tap into and, and learn on their own? Yeah, we have a ton. So there is both the self-directed people can be placed with social enterprises. So on that's just on the Moving Worlds platform. Um, and we call it, that'd be the part of the website called For Expertiers. Expertiers is our term for people who are doing volunteering with expertise. Um, about a decade ago, it was really in a reaction to this pushback on how many uh, service programs were really volunteerism that weren't actually benefiting the social enterprises themselves. Mm. Um, but then as far as other just self-directed content, self-directed learning, um, we have a very, very full and active blog where our team is publishing multiple articles a week on different social enterprise trends, which are free and available to everyone. You can get on our newsletter that kind of filters the best of that content. And then we also have free community webinars on everything from finding your purpose in work to understanding skills needed for different social enterprises or learning from industry leaders within our network as well. Well, okay. So a, a, a rich treasure trove of, uh, of resources there. We try. Yeah. Uh, two really fascinating terms you mentioned there that uh, bear repeating, and, and I'd like to talk about them just for a moment, uh, volunteerism and, and expertise. Uh, and I like I like to play on words. That's just me nerding out on uh, on, right. on English language there for you. Right. But uh, nonprofits um, have issues with both, in in the sense that uh, the executive directors and board chairs that I speak to are always looking for people with a certain level of of expertise that they'd love to have on their board or someone to come in on a volunteer basis and and genuinely make that difference. Uh, and, and some organizations rely quite heavily on volunteers and and there's a it's easy to think of volunteers because we don't pay them as somehow the the sort of light touch from a recruitment and and training and onboarding perspective uh, and it's clearly not the case if they you know in, in fact in law in most states they're they're employees with a zero pay grade and 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 require all the same sort of uh, uh, support and infrastructure that that paid employees do. Totally. Um, and, and so how do you, uh, how, or, or, or what can you say about volunteerism in, uh, volunteerism was the words used, people who are sort of going through the motion and how could, how could a, a, an executive director or, or a volunteer manager be better at um, shaping the volunteer experience for, to attract more experts and, and fewer of the volunteerists? Yeah. That's a great question. And I think, uh, yeah, I think the way you framed it is perfect. Um, uh, so what, and, and this is just my experience, um, but I've also worked with several organizations that engaged in meaningful service, meaningful volunteering. Um, what, the thing that I found is that 
the main thing that organizations can do to find the people with the expertise they need is just be really specific about what they're looking for. So for instance, we need someone to help us develop a communications plan. This is the scope of the project. This is what we have available. And, and that kind of leads into the next thing, which is just like you really um, kind of intuited on that is you need to take this seriously. Like not only are these really time consuming things to do, but not managing it properly is going to lead to some just bad outcomes. And I think a lot of not-for-profits underestimate how much work it is to manage volunteers. And so I'd say like being really specific about what you're trying to get out of it. Um, and one thing, you know, we do through our program is we have experteering planning guides that gets um, the organization and the individual really aligned on what they're going to do. And that includes like what kind of resources the organization will make available to them. So there's no surprises um, access that the experteer would have to the beneficiaries that they're working with. All those things can be really important. Um, and finally, on the volunteerism note, at least what I've found is that most of the time that there's a real issue with volunteerism, it's because the organization, and that's kind of how they set things up. Like they, they saw volunteerism as a way to charge people money to come and do some kind of typically token volunteering that may actually harm the community or may dishonor them and, and who they are just by letting a bunch of people kind of either wander through their homes or be in their community without consent. Um, so that's, that's one of the biggest things that we found. Right, I see, and I, and and I think one of the things that that made just listening to you there made me think about with regard to managing both volunteers and uh, and 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 setting up the expectations around uh, experteers is accountability, uh, totally. which again is uh, which which is which is an issue. How do you uh, do? You have a particular model or structure around. Uh, accountability that you recommend or is that a case-by-case -case basis by organization and pro bono match? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would say that for us, it's about having some kind of agreement. So we have this particular framework that we use the experteering um, planning guide. And it's a lot about like scoping out what are your expectations for the project? Um, what is it going to look like in terms of how much time you're spending in the office. And this is, you know, outside of the COVID times, but, you know, within our virtual age, and we're doing a ton of virtual placements right now, um, how often are we touching base? Uh, what will deliverables look like? Who will I communicate with? And all these things may not be set in stone and they may change, but what we found is if there's something that people can agree on from the beginning and literally sign their names on it, even if there needs to be a change, there can at least be a document that they're pointing to around um, kind of, hey, we agreed to this, this seems to be changing, like, why did this change? And, and how, can we, how can we really evolve to make this meaningful? The other piece is in our fellowship and in a lot of our learning programs, we actually have accountability groups that are smaller subsets of the overall community of practice and learning community, where people can kind of bounce ideas off of each other, validate things before they're going and proposing them to the organization and taking up a lot of their valuable time. So just having a way to almost like prototype ideas before you take it to your social enterprise partner. So setting expectations from the beginning is, uh, is a way of sort of um, preparing the groundwork, if you will, for accountability and almost minimizing the amount of time you're going to have to spend on it later. So you know, not so. kicking well, accountability so. down, the, down the road. Yep. Uh, and I think the lesson here that, uh, that I'm hearing, but again, please comment and correct me if I'm, 
misinterpreting this in any way, but but on, on this on this series in, in a number of different contexts, we've talked about the best way to get the best out of board members is not by trying to change the behavior of the of the current ones now, but by by recruiting the right sort of board members with the with the with clearly set expectations and then being um, uh, deliberate about how you support board members to deliver on those expectations because that takes some time too. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Like it's, it's kind of that, uh, like that old adage in the business world, like it's hire slow, fire fast, like really, really being intentional about the people that you bring in. So yeah, 100% agree. Right. Okay. Uh, I've got a couple of things that I'm, I'm thinking about now. I just want to remind the, uh, the folks in the chat that they can throw questions in uh, if they, if they want to. Uh, one um, thing I'm curious about is the different approaches. You said people coming from, from you said both extremes, if you want to draw a linear spectrum from the, from the private sector, wanting to make greater impact and from uh, the nonprofit or public sector and looking to be more entrepreneurial or enterprising. How, and I know these are just sort of generalities, but where do you see uh, differences in the in their approaches to coming to uh, your world around social enterprise. Oh, that's such a good question, and I it's so nuanced that I don't know if I'll have a clear answer. But I'll I'll, I'll share some anecdotes of things that we found. Um, one is that a pitfall that we see and we really try to design against is there's this um, assumption that we can find, and what and really at the genesis of our fellowship, this is one of the things we tried to design for is the idea that we saw there was a lot of people who had the assumption that, okay, I work in the private sector, I do X. And if I just could work in the nonprofits, I'd feel fulfilled, I'd be happy with no considerations of how's the organization run. Um, like, will I be paid something that can sustain me and my family? Um, what are the working hours like? Is the impact actually real? Will my skills apply? So for us, like it's so important to ask those very holistic questions going, going in either direction. And I think same going from not-for-profit to for-profit. Um, but uh, kind, of, kind of back to your question in general, I, I don't know that um, we, we've, seen, we've seen people from all sectors who um, are looking to do more or looking to have a greater impact. Some are trying to stay within their company. Some are trying to stay within the organization. Some are trying to move into a totally different place. And I don't know that there's like a stereotypical way that the different sectors are thinking. There's definitely like some that you could, that you could isolate and think about. But I think just in general that um, one thing we find is people really benefit from understanding how regardless of what sector you're a part of, you can have a real impact. And secondarily, that it's really important to have a holistic understanding of the role or the sector or the type of work you're doing before jumping into it, because you don't want to, you know, get out of the frying pan and right into the fire. Like there's a lot of people who don't validate their assumptions. And I think it leads to them making decisions that they're not happy with. And maybe they end up just rushing back to what they were doing before. But you don't see. Uh, so what I was, what I thought I might hear from you is something around uh, the stereotype. So uh, uh, you know, someone with a nonprofit or public sector career going, mm, a bit intimidated by the business, and maybe someone yeah. from a from a private sector career coming in saying, well, maybe this is going to be a bit light touch, not so rigorous, uh, yeah. you know, because it's a charity. You know, yeah. th those sorts of presumptions. But you, but I didn't hear you refer to those because it, and mention the word nuance that, yeah. that really maybe that's not a factor. You know, 
you're, you're absolutely right. That is like, those are very clear stereotypes. Those are clear lines that I think we need to build shared vocabulary across. Um, those people for sure exist. Um, we just do our best to kind of screen them out through our application. Like that's one of the things that we really screen for <laughs> is we're looking for people who are open-minded and respect other sectors and respect other types of contributions. Um, that That's a real non-starter for us. And, and that's not to say that like we don't do that work with people. We absolutely consult and, and work on projects where people are needing to do that shift. And not all the people in our programs, myself, our team included, don't bring some of those stereotypes sometime, but it's definitely something that we're trying to move away from. Yeah. And again, it's the, it's the higher slow uh, and deliberately yeah. and, and screen people. And, 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 and again, it's the idea that if you're from a nonprofit and you think that uh, income generations is going to be an easy answer or an easy step yeah. forward Ooh. or vice versa, you know, you're going to be surprised, disappointed, yep. and uh, you know, it's going to cost a lot more time and effort. Yeah, totally. Okay. I I want to uh, open um, uh, to a question to to Catherine. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Hi. Hi. Nice to to speak to you all. I I was debating, because I'm really busy at work, I was debating whether I should join the webinar, and I'm so glad I did, because this is exactly what I need. (laughs) I've I've been working sort of self-employed, and I'm just at the stage now where I'm so fed up with it. I want to do something to contribute to my community. And what you've just said now about having this utopian vision of, you know, is it really going to give me satisfaction if I'm earning zero money and if I'm doing all this effort and nobody recognizes it? And oh. I, I can't believe you've just said all that because it's just, it's exactly what I'm, I'm thinking. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm really interested in the, in the fellowship in the course. Um, I live in Spain. I've noticed that it says on your website that you've got a virtual kickoff for next year, but will those courses run totally online for next year? Do you know? Yeah, great question. So we committed to doing all, so we made the decision early on. We launched one cohort at the beginning of the year in person, and that's just the three-day launch. And then the rest of it has always been online. So because we have people all over the world. Um, And then from April through January of 2021, we committed just for our members' safety to do them all virtually. Um, And so really the only thing that's changed is the three-day or the three-day launch that used to be in person is now a weekend virtual that we've made okay. really fun, really engaging. So, yeah. Oh, does, does that sorry, answer your question? I'm, I'm sorry if I'm going to ask you this in a bit. It's on the website because I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. But oh, that's I'm all actually good. Starting, I'm actually starting a master's online related to um, sort of global education everything in September. So I'm looking at maybe starting next April. You do an intensive weekend and then the rest, is it just a few hours per week? Could you give me an idea of what's... Yeah. Yeah. Great question. And, and you can definitely find this and also alumni stories yeah, on and the website. like things. Sorry. Oh no, no, no. You're all good. I'm, I'm happy to answer. So, um, yeah, it's the, the intensive, which really kicks off the experience, builds that shared vocabulary. And then the way we think about it is about five to seven hour a week commitment for readings, uh, participating in webinars, uh, accountability groups. That is the commitment outside of whatever social enterprise placement you do, like say you're working with an organization for a month and you all have team meetings once a week for an hour. Like we don't, we don't factor that in. That's another. Okay. Another thing. Okay. I'll have a good look at the, the website. Cool. So it's, it's viable for me in Spain to do it. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, so our current cohort, we have everything from Seattle to Sydney, Australia. So okay. as much basically as around the world as you can go. Yeah. Okay. That's smashing. Thank you very much, Carl. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Catherine. I hope that's uh, helpful. 
Uh, and just to clarify, uh, Cole, so we've got Spain, Sydney, and Seattle. There's there's no requirement that your location start with the letter S. <laughs> no, beautiful coincidence. Other than that, no, we, we do have Singapore too. There and oh, I right. as well. Well, well there, there, there you go. Um, okay, so great question there in terms of the, the, the fellowship. And I think this is uh, something we're tapping into. And I'm seeing a lot more interest in in, in social enterprise and uh, for, as I said, from sort of both sides. One of the questions uh, of my next area of, of inquiry I want you to respond to is, is what you said at the beginning around people being interested in a, in a social impact and a, an environmental impact. And I've heard this referred to as the, uh, the double bottom line or the triple bottom line, the, 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 the first one, of course, being the, the financial uh, impact or the, or the profit, and then the social impact, and then the sustainability or environmental impact. Can you talk a bit about how people are trying to combine those two or some of the ways they complement each other and it sometimes work against each other. I think the against each other people can see pretty pretty straightforward because we're talking about a lot of market failures and and so on and, and, and things that people don't want to pay for. Uh, but but how are how 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 do you support people to address uh, those, those the, the double or triple bottom line? Yeah, great question. So um, you know we, we support a lot of our fellows who are in organizations who are addressing those issues or launching their own thing. We do it really explicitly through a program that we just launched um, in partnership with SAP called Escrid. And Escrid is a accelerator for social enterprises who are working in sustainable supply chains. So trying to make uh, corporate supply chain, global supply chains more sustainable. And, you know, uh, there's been a lot of talk. Um, so Paul Pullman, um, uh, formerly of Unilever, is doing a lot of great speaking about convening business leaders. You know, Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia, like so many of these folks are not only making the case for like, don't be a jerk, make your business more sustainable, but also like there's a huge opportunity, not only in winning over consumers who are interested in sustainability. So that's one of the things that we find in terms of environmental and the profit bottom line, like connecting those can be a really good one. Another one is, um, so a book that we read in our fellowship is called The Purpose Economy um, by an author named Aaron Hurst, who is the founder of Taproot, um, for those of you who may be familiar. And the whole book is about how more and more people are wanting to find purpose in their work and they're wanting their company to have a social impact. And they're finding again and again that the companies that allow for people to actually get connected to their purpose and have a meaningful social impact out in the world, so part of that triple bottom line, they're more profitable. There's a way better employee retention. Uh, there's more health. Training takes less. Like Leadership development programs have more of an impact. Um, so those, those are some. And then maybe the last one I'd say is that you know, climate change is an example. Um, so my, my partner works on climate change. So she's, you know, giving me the updates every day is something that's very, very present for me. And when we think about a lot of um, the places that are shifting and the places that are going to be forced to make some shifts to adapt to climate change, companies are seeing that, you know, they have some extreme liabilities. And this is not just gas and oil or other, you know, big mm -hmm. emitters. 
Like there are so many companies out there that if they're not focusing on the environmental bottom line, they're going to lose tons of money later. It's either through regulations, the government's going to have to come in, or there's going to be a huge pushback from consumers, or they're going to just have stranded assets. They're going to have things that they're not going to be able to profit on later on. So they're seeing it as a liability mitigation more than anything. So the, those would probably be three. There's way, way more. And those are just some that are top of mind for me. But those are three examples I see where the three bottom lines weave together in really synergistic ways. That, that, that's really, really useful. The, the other distinction I can see between the three of them is the extent to which we can know what our impact is. So it's, it's nice for us to pat ourselves on the um, on the back and say, hey, we're in social impact, so we're obviously making the world a better place. Yeah. There are clearly adverse or negative social impacts. Uh, there, and, and we understand that from, a, from a, a, an environmental perspective, certainly. Now, a court, uh, you know, in comparison to the financial impact where there is you know, decades, if not centuries, of conventional ways of measuring things and we can we can quantify things through through money and so on and so forth and so we have really clear accounting principles and metrics and and measurements about what constitutes uh, financial impact or not social impact I have a lot of experience with with metrics in in human services you know we, we've learned a lot over the last 20 30 years still some ways to go uh, and there are some broad large environmental measures that that we see in the, the news from time to time but how can you comment a bit about how we the three work uh in, in parallel and how we can record and understand what our impacts actually are mm, yeah it's a great it's a great question and i think it's you know it can be really specific like you know on the environmental side, it could be carbon emissions and lowering carbon emissions. Like there's some examples that are like very data driven. And although they're really complex issues, um, we can get clear data on that we're, we're moving the needle in a positive direction. You're totally right though. There's so many unintended consequences of different social programs. Um, and, you know, coming from the design perspective, we'd say that that's because often these social enterprises are not embracing a human centered design perspective where they're, truly empathizing, building an understanding, and going through a process of defining the real problems in partnership with the communities experiencing them and honoring the intelligence of the communities that are experiencing them. So that's one of the things we think leads to really bad social impact. Um, but on the, on the measurement side, um, you know, as you said, like we're, we're getting better. There's been decades of people trying to do more holistic measures of social impact, um, whether that's everything from measures of economic uh, advancement to mental health, to mobility, to all different kinds of things. Um, and, you know, you can get a lot through qualitative data, through interviews, through connecting with people, through getting them to share their authentic stories. But also when it comes down to it, you need like a data-driven scientific approach. Um, for many of you may be familiar with um, the practice of randomized control trials, but RCTs have really emerged in a lot of ways as the gold standard for measuring impact. They absolutely have some problems with them. But mm -hmm. like if you're trying to compare two things, like in having a control group, just like in scientific method or doing, doing hypothesis-driven development in science, there's a lot of great ways that organizations can actually prove um, if something is helping or not. And, and two books that we highlight in our community that are great for that is one, um, and it's both by people who are uh, really 
leaders in the space of measuring impact. One's called More Than Good Intentions um, by Dean Carlin. And then the other one is called Poor Economics. Um, and Poor Economics is written by two authors um, who actually just won the Nobel Prize this last year in economics. And it's all around truly understanding the impacts of international development, social impact problems on households and individuals experiencing poverty around the world. And, so, and who are the two authors for that? Um, I've got it near me. Uh, Esther Duflo and um, Ab- Abjit ban- Banerjee. I may be mispronouncing his last name. They're actually a married couple, kind of, kind of a, a badass power couple writing, writing books and winning Nobel Prizes. Um, but it's a dense book. I will warn you on that. This is not like a breezy summer read. Um, our fellows, we, they recover with another much breezier one after they read this one. But if you're looking to dig in, it's really wonderful. But, you know, it's interesting in a sense, the, this, this triple bottom line of these three things have, have always existed. You know, you're a large company, maybe you're, um, let me go back a hundred years. There's, uh, there's clearly financial data that you were concentrated about, but you, you had a social impact on your community, clearly the way that you employed staff would provide uh, certain benefits and, and leisure opportunities for staff and so on and so forth. And there, there could be a, an environmental impact for the, the outcome of your manufacturer. So it's not as though these impacts have never, uh, um, have, have not existed or are new, oh. it's just our attention to them uh, is new. Yep, no, you're absolutely right. And I mean, in some ways, like if you take the US context as an example, in some ways, companies were more pro-social in times like the 1950s and the way that they supported employees and invested in communities, at least for some demographics, for some, some groups of people, specifically, you know, white folk, white working class people. Um, and there's always been impacts. One, one thing that we think about, too, is what was, what's the history of philanthropy? And what's the history of corporate social responsibility? And one person to look to is Andrew Carnegie, so the steel magnate. Um, you know, one of the wealthiest people of his era. And although he gave away a lot of money and in some ways supported his workers, at other times he, you know, busted unions, he had a pretty low opinion of people experiencing poverty. And I think that showed in a lot of his philanthropy. So I think it's also about getting really into the intentions of why people are doing work and what are the beliefs and values that influence why they support communities, why they support employees, why they support, you know, larger public. To to a certain extent, though, social enterprise, and I think some of the the drive and the interest in it is it runs counter to that uh, model or or philosophy of philanthropy where uh, people generate wealth and then they give back, you know, as though they took it to begin with. I always like the idea of give back means, uh, you know, ways of interpreting that term. But, But the idea of philanthropy being a form of redistribution uh, is, is um, I, I think, challenged by some ideas around social enterprise where, you know, we can, we can be further upstream in addressing some of these social issues and environmental issues rather than being totally exploitative in order to generate short-term revenues, hoard those, and then at some point when we feel comfortable, <laughs> we, we can give the excess to address some of the damage we've created. Yep. Yeah, it's just, it's our own social impact trickle-down economics. It's allow capitalism to do what it can to people and to the environment, and then at the end of the day, give a little bit back. And I think we're realizing that this system is broken. Um, many of you probably heard of or, or seen the book Winners Take All um, by Anand Doradis, and just one of the best books about this dynamic, about the link between 
just really rapacious uh, capitalism, billionaires accumulating a ton of wealth, and then seeding foundations to, you know, start to alleviate some of the problems that they truly contributed to. It's, you know, it's not an indictment to say all foundations, all philanthropy is wrong, not at all. But it is saying, hey, can we be just as interested in how these problems were caused as we are in how these wealthy people are giving money to solve them? Um, versus Kev, what you'd said, like, could we actually just be more upstream in our thinking? Could we try to address these issues before they become issues? Yeah, and I think that's that's certainly from uh, a lot of the people I speak to more on the nonprofit public sector side, interested in social enterprise is is combining uh, that idea of and, and trying to move from a, a reliance on philanthropy and grants and donations solely, and 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 bring in some commercial activity that helps uh, uh, speed or accelerate the uh, ability to address those social problems and, and, and prevent some of them in, in, in a very real sense. Yep. Um, you know, uh, do you, you talked a bit about the supply chain uh, type of social enterprise. Do you also support the sort of uh, workforce oriented uh, social enterprises where uh, what I'm thinking of is organizations that uh, hire uh, either exclusively or, or a large proportion of people who are otherwise underrepresented or disadvantaged in the labor market? Yep, absolutely. Um, we've had a lot of fellows and different organizations and we have social enterprises that we support through experteers. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a huge opportunity for impact. If you are providing people the opportunity to be more economically viable, they then have money that they can choose to do with it what they want. And often people make really good decisions. Like there's all these really bizarre stereotypes and, you know, misunderstandings of if you just give people money and sometimes if you give people money for their work that they're going to, they're going to blow it on something like people generally will do things to maximize, you know, the value for their family, for themselves, for their health. Like, of course, all people like treats and all people, you know, blow money on things sometimes, but like we have a lot of organizations that just say, hey, can we get more people into this economic system and give them the opportunity to grow from there? And so one I, one I shout out is an amazing organization one of our fellows is a part of uh, called Fair Start, um, which is an organization that helps people who yeah, would not be as employable in some other areas get trained and working in really, really fantastic restaurants. Again, this, is, this has changed a bit through COVID, but they do workforce development through a lot of programs. And they're actually a part of a network that's uh, both national and going global called Catalyst Kitchens that trains other programs to develop uh, kind of training pipelines like this. So that, that's just one example. But there's definitely workforce development uh, work throughout a lot of these supply chains that can make workforces more representative, more ethical, and more employee-centered. Right. Um, so you mentioned COVID. Uh, we've all been affected, obviously, by, by COVID this year. There's also uh, you know, an interesting political climate, particularly in the U.S. in, in 2020, uh, dominated not only by uh, you know, a, a sort of polarized presidential election, but also by uh, the deaths of George Floyd and others and Black Lives Matters protests, which have had obviously some echoes in, in other metropolitan areas, particularly in, in other countries. Has social enterprise or, or, the, or your lens into it been uh, differentially affected by these developments? I mean, what's, what's 2020 meant for social enterprise? Mm, that's a good question. Um, 
it's something we've talked about for years, but I think we're seeing it very starkly. So um, in the same way that we believe all sectors are needed for social impact, we also would argue that all different types of, so like what one maybe traditional way to think about social impact would be that you'd have like not-for-profit people, community-based organizations. You might have government people who are working as social service providers, like that social safety net, which is varies between countries. You could have social entrepreneurs who are creating a whole new thing, maybe trying to address something upstream, like you'd mentioned, Kev. The one group that we think is really, really important, and we've always done everything we can to make sure our social impact professionals honor and understand their contribution, is that of activists. Like activism has such a role and it, it's this really complementary thing where maybe, and we've seen this with Black Lives Matter, we've seen this with all these other organizing movements, um, the activism movement around young people trying to address climate change. Like if we did not have that, it would make the social service providers have a harder time doing their job. The social enterprises have less of a conversation that's already been started. Maybe not-for-profits not have as much galvanized support. Like activism and the role of activists and organizers cannot be understated. And I think that that's one thing that if social enterprise had not understood that up till this year, I think this is one where they really started taking notice, or at least they should be taking notice because it's such a valuable part of our team. And is, is that uh, also seen... Uh, I mean, I would I would expect to see uh, activism also uh, quite prominent in the environmental sector too. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. Tons of tons of times where environmental issues, because they are so large, they need people who are pushing on elected officials, pushing on governments, pushing on areas to make something change that maybe social enterprises and not for profits could help with the implementation of or the maintenance of. But like without that activism in whatever form it takes, whether it's about awareness raising or whether it's about policy change, like environmental activism is extremely important. Yeah, it's interesting because it tends to be, uh, well, I guess it's, it's, not a, it's not a compensated activity often. I mean, people are doing activism in addition to, to, to something else uh, or, or in, a, in, in an advocacy type of nonprofit that also relies on campaign or donations and stuff and, and less enterprise uh, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic there uh, around activism. It's hard. One, one thing I'd point out that's been a really cool trend that I've seen maybe in the past four years is this idea of a community-supported organizer. Um, there's more and more funds that are being lifted up where in the same way you could contribute to an artist you love on Patreon, or you could do a GoFundMe for someone who's doing a project or has something that they need happen. There's also CSOs, community-supported organizers, where you'll just say, I know this activist they fight for a cause that I really care about. I'm going to give them 20 bucks monthly. And if enough people do that, they can literally do their activism with no strings attached from other organizations or governing bodies that might in some way influence the way they do their work. So that's sort of fun. almost like a crowdfunded yeah. activism. Totally. Yep. That's, I think that's the promise of it. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, and that, as I mentioned, crowdfunding, does, is crowdfunding play a role in social enterprise? I, yeah, I think it's another tool in the toolbox. Um, I think that it needs to be done well. There's a lot of really bad crowdfunding out there. Um, and in the same way, uh, I think we're still dialing in how crowdfunding translates to delivery of a product or service. And this happens in the private sector and really traditional things all the time. Like you'll get a bunch of excitement about a crowdfunding an idea and then maybe the delivery is not so great or maybe it's delayed or all these other things and it creates this kind of tension between the audience. But 
as far as crowdfunding, yeah, it's an awesome, very democratic way to either invest in things you care about that maybe don't have a established structure to do so, or um, just to provide wealth redistribution to people or causes that you think are important. Like, I, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's a one size fits all thing. And I think some people overhype its promise, but yeah, I just say it's another tool in the toolbox. So could you identify, um, this is, I'm putting you on the, on the spot here, but if you were uh, an executive director thinking, you know, maybe crowdfunding is the way to, uh, uh, to, to initiate this, this idea before we can present it to, to grant uh, makers or, or something of that nature. Uh, and, and you meant, and the reason I'm asking this is because you mentioned there's some really bad <laughs> crowdfunding. So I'm I'm wondering what guidance you might provide to an executive director or a board considering crowdfunding. Things to watch out for, things to not do, or any must dos. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I did say I was putting you on the spot. There. No, 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 you're all good. No, you're I all couldn't good. resist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. Um, you know, I. I've, I've served on a couple boards who've had conversations like this, but I would in no way say that this is an area of my expertise. So I'll just give that caveat. Um, I, I would say that it's really about just being strategic. Like, is there a reason you didn't think about this as a grant opportunity? Is there a reason that this wouldn't just be better through your major donors? Is it both about raising an awareness? Because crowdfunding is really good about getting a message out. And could there be a harmonious way of using the crowdfunding to actually pressure your major donors to give more? Or could you use this as a way to strengthen a grant application? Like I would say like only do crowdfunding if you're going to think about it in a very holistic way. And then also back to uh, what we talked about with volunteer management, I'd say the number one problem with crowdfunding is people underestimate how much time it's going to take to do it well. Like it's an extremely time consuming thing to manage a crowdfunding campaign. Like you need, I, I found that to be a successful crowdfunding campaign, you need to have like a communications person, a communication strategy on it, like a good video, a good interface. Like it's really, really time consuming. So it's not just like, Hey, free money from people who don't know us yet. Like it's very much a part of your toolkit and take it seriously would be and my that, And that's interesting because it's, it reminds me a bit about events. Uh, there's, there's, um, uh, you know, potentially huge, you know, it could seem lucrative, but the amount of time and effort it is to to get that additional margin uh, as well is difficult. And secondly, you're engaging people on an almost transactional perspective. Yep. And, and although, you, although you're, you know, almost by definition seeking investors and crowdfunding, if they don't really know you, it's, it's, not, it's not the same as, as yeah. you said, like, for example, the major donors. Totally. Yep. And, and events are a great corollary there. Like I've been a part of a lot of large, you know, very lucrative fundraising galas for different organizations, but good God, those take a lot of work. Like it's, it's a huge investment and it, it can be lead to a lot of staff burnout. So just being very mindful of that important resource, your staff's time and energy. So, so just to, uh, um, uh, dispel any any misgivings. The idea of a crowdfunding campaign is a quick way to uh, yeah. generate some funding to try a new idea that may not be part of our core business and our, you know, that sort of thing is is not really the way to go because to do it well takes as much time and effort as as anything else do it done well. Yeah, that I mean that's a great question. Like I think 
I think you could do it in gradients. Like if you're truly trying to be experimental with something and you've got a network of donors you're trying to test a new idea with, and you're not necessarily trying to tap into whole new pots of capital, I think you could use crowdfunding to seed an idea. But if you're trying to engage a whole new group, you're trying to get them involved, like it's going to take some time. I think you, I think you articulated it perfectly. Where it's different though from events you mentioned is the, 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 there's an expectation at the back end, of course, that you deliver, that you implement yeah, something. Totally. And, and you know, so, so you've got to balance the demands on your time yep. with, you know, with how much you're doing at the front end and the marketing of it and the communications of yep. it, which is all a distraction, all an opportunity cost against yep. the actual delivery of what you're trying to do. Yep, totally, totally well said. That's the equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, tough to, that's tough to get right, I'd have thought. I agree, yeah. Okay. Uh, A final question um, is uh, what, you know, what's the big next, the next big thing that you think is, is around the corner or is there nothing like it's just, just, you know, we're moving ahead at pace and and things are growing and it's exciting, but there's no like, you know, thing that's about to surprise us or or disrupt us. Yeah. Great question. Um, I would say this is both from my advantage as someone who's run social enterprises and has worked in education. Like I've taught it, university for a number of years and I run learning communities for adults now around social impact. I think the next big thing that's coming is a reckoning for higher education. Like not just because of COVID, COVID's only speeding it up. And this is something that not only touches, you know, my world of education, it touches everyone. Like I think that universities, you know, bless their hearts. There's wonderful things that universities do. They're such a value to society. I think that they have been the slowest to change of any institution, even more than government. I think they have held on to their, their power and the way that they, they do their work. Um, and I think that they need to make it more affordable. They need to make it more scalable and they need to make it more impact centric. And, you know, we're a small part of that movement, but I think that that's going to be an extremely large thing coming. So. Fascinating. I, yeah. I, that's not what I was expecting, but I think. What you're, <laughs> yeah. But 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 it's but it makes sense in in everything that we've spoken about for the last hour. And thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, been, no, this is fun, fantastic. Yeah. And there's lots of links and 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 I, I've just like extended my reading list by several titles now. Oh God, uh, mine's but, too big. <laughs> um, the the idea that we all have to learn in this more dynamic. Uh, experiential way, which is not necessarily the 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 standard model for for higher ed. Yeah, um, means that you know we, we, there there's uh, some interesting developments to look forward to. I think you put a bow on it perfectly. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> nice. Well, Thank we have so now much. a neat, tidy package. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sixty minutes. That will be a podcast it, uh, as soon as we can. Uh, you know, get our heads around. <laughs> Uh, producing it and releasing it. And uh, I want to thank you so much, Cole, for uh, spending this time with us. I know you rearranged a staff meeting to do so too. So uh, I'm grateful for for you and your colleagues for accommodating us uh, at our regular slot Wednesdays at one uh, in the, in the nonprofit problem solver. Sweet. No, such. Yeah. Thank you. Totally. Thank you for all the great questions, everyone. And um, yeah, I think my, you can find my email through the website. If anyone has any follow-ups, I'm available. Okay, that's the Moving World Institute. Cole Hoover, director on the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. I'm grateful to my guest, Cole Hoover, who you can contact online through movingworlds.org. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. 
you can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.